this morning as we continue working through Luke's account of the last few days of Jesus' life. We come to a moment, uh, last week we left off, we were in the garden uh, where Jesus was praying and his disciples fell asleep and Jesus come back, comes back and encourages them to keep on praying. We come to a moment though when the betrayer arrives. He arrives not alone. He arrives with his band of temple guards and they have one task to arrest Jesus. So imagine the scene with me. It's dark. Uh, you're within sight of the temple itself. You can look across a, a very short valley and see the temple walls and the temple itself standing up in the night, the glow of the gold uh, illuminating the, the, the skyline of the city. The surroundings around you are olive trees that are ancient. There's conflict, though, on the horizon. Remember, Judas had sold his teacher and his former master for 30 pieces of silver. And so he led this band of soldiers to arrest Jesus. And as the scene unfolds, there's three questions that come up in this conversation that I want us to focus on. Now, I don't know about you, but I like questions, uh, except when my kids ask them uh, on the road trips we've gone on over the years, over and over and over, and sometimes the same question ad infinitum. But questions are good, aren't they? Questions can help us to begin to think. Questions can help us begin to open our minds to other things. Questions begin to help us find what? Answers to what we need to know. Sometimes they also reveal what we believe in the process. They can even betray our hearts if we're not careful. So I want us to look at the entirety of the passage before we look at these three questions. We pick up in Luke chapter 22, verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them, and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Judas, excuse me, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders, have you come out who, have, who had come out against him? Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Father God, we pray right now as we look at these questions that, Father, you would help us to see ourselves in them. Because, Lord, we find ourselves from time to time asking similar questions to these about life, about our faith, about our existence, about what we should do, about the pathways we should go down. God, show us your truth in this passage, not just in the story itself, which we want to know, God, but we want to know how it applies to us and how it reveals the path that we're on and how we can be on the right path. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we come here to three questions, two by Jesus, one by his disciples. And the questions provide a basis, I think, for us to understand what they're doing, where they're going, what they're about. So let's look at the first question. The question is this, will you... Choose an intimate betrayal. I struggle with how to phrase this question because it seems kind of awkward the way I ended up with it. But it, it, 
catches the idea of Judas and what he's asked in that moment. Look at the passage again. While Jesus was still speaking, there comes a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, one of his own, one of his disciples, was leading them, and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss in an intimate way, a close way? As the scene opens, we find Jesus is talking to his disciples in the garden. I suspect it's right after he woke them up, so they're a little groggy-headed. And they're standing there in the garden as they're having that conversation we looked at last week. And into the moment comes a group of men, men with probably torches, men with weapons drawn, men coming on a mission to arrest Jesus and carry him to the temple leaders. And their arrival surely raised the tension level for the people in the garden. Now, these people are individuals who are still struggling with the nature of Jesus. They still don't fully get it who Jesus is. They still don't understand that he is Messiah come to establish what? A a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly one. And there's there's some thought that goes into this that Judas was one that said the kingdom has got to be earthly because that's what we've always heard and that's what we've always been taught and that's what we've always believed. He's coming to establish a kingdom here on earth. And Judas, some scholars would say, is making his attempt to force Jesus to do what he needs to do. But into this moment, they don't understand why he's there. And leading the arriving crowd is none other than one of his own disciples. Isn't it fine? I find it odd and and, and ironic even that one of his close disciples, a man named Judas from a village called Iscariot, is there. A man who's handled the finances for the ministry over the last three years is there. And he has got these folks in tow with him. And he's there to do what he has to do, he thinks. Now, understand Jesus wasn't surprised. If you go back a few verses, you see Jesus tells at least one of the disciples this is going to happen. So he's not surprised. He's not startled. But I suspect he is saddened. For his disciple is about to do what he's going to do. Remember, Judas has walked with him for three years. He's served with him for three years. They've ministered together for three years. They've slept out under the stars for three years. They've watched miracle after miracle after miracle happen for what? Three years. And now under the cover of darkness, Judas arrives to arrest. I suppose it's really one thing to think someone could betray you and quite another thing to finally see them actually betray But yet here Judas is. He's about to complete his agreed upon signal to identify this is the man to arrest because many of these people had never seen Jesus, weren't sure he was. It was going to be dark. The plan was for Judas to come up and kiss him on the cheek. And you're going, why would they do that? That's a very common expression in the Middle East even to this day. I remember the first time I had one of the guys in the Middle East on a tour come up and do that to me, I kind of freaked out because that's not our culture, right? Our culture is to keep people at arm's length and shake their hand. Or anymore, we just give them knuckles because we don't want to pass the germs on this side. We do the germs on this side instead. And, and so here we are in this situation. This is a fairly common activity. But here he is to not have to verbally identify, but to make it very clear, this is the man to arrest. But just before he completes it, Jesus stops him with a question. With a question, he says to Judas, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? 
Imagine with me the emotion of the moment as Jesus, the Son of God, fully human, fully man, asked a man whom he has chosen to be his disciple, a man he has walked with year after year now. Are you really going to do this? Are you really going to come up and kiss me in such an intimate manner and betray me? Is this really how it's going to work out? I suspect Jesus was asking the question not only as clarification for his impending doom, but I think it was almost a doorway to say, Judas, is this really what you want to do? You see, until we do an act, we haven't what? Done the act. Until we actually betray, we haven't betrayed. Until we've made the wrong choice, we haven't actually done the wrong choice, right? And that's what I think Jesus is doing for him here. He's questioning him, trying to get him to stop short, to do a better decision. Now, we all know that Jesus had to go to the cross to die for our sin. That's the way God intended it. And it apparently it was God's plan for Judas to be the one. But I still believe at this point Judas had a choice. You go, well, if he hadn't have done it, what would have happened? Somebody else would have done it. Jesus still would have gone to the cross for our sins. That's not the question. The question is, did Judas have to be the one? In God's sovereignty, of course, he understands what would happen and would be happening. But listen to the words of Paul when he wrote to the Romans about this kind of issue. He says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Here's what happened to Judas. He had decided back when he went and met with the, 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 the temple uh, leadership that he set his mind where? Not on the things of God, though he may have thought he was. He sets his mind on the flesh and says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to force the issue. I'm going to get some cash out of this. I'm going to get a decision that's mine. And he set his mind, listen, on money. He set his mind on power. Every one of us is really faced with this question every day. Will we live our lives honorably or will we live them selfishly? We will live them for the spirit or we live it for the flesh. Up to the moment Judas made his choice, he had a decision to make of either going through with it or not. And we believe that God never allows a trial, a temptation, without also what? Giving us a way out. There was a way out for Judas. He chose not to take it. At the end, we're responsible for our decisions. So question number one is, will you choose this intimate betrayal? Question number two is one I think we often ask, if not verbally, at least in our own minds. Should we choose to fight back? Look what happens next. And when those who were around him, this is his disciples, saw what would follow, they said, Lord, can we kill him? Now, you're going, he didn't say that. He says, can we strike him with a sword? I don't know about you, but getting struck with a sword is really not a healthy activity to be involved in. I really believe they were saying, can we start a war here? Can we start the, ba- can we start the kingdom now? I believe the disciples still struggle with the identity of who Jesus was. They still don't get it that Jesus is not here to establish an earthly kingdom at this point. He's there to establish a spiritual one, to set the hearts of men and women free. They, even they, didn't get it. But here they are asking the question, can we strike one with a sword? Shall we strike with a sword? Shall we attack? Did you see the answer Jesus gave them before they acted? It's right between... The word sword and the word and. Did you see it? You're going, there's nothing there. That's right. Jesus never got the answer out. Because like disciples often do, they jumped because they'd already decided what they were going to do. Look at he says, he says, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear 
and healed him. So tensions are running, let's just say, pretty high. The encounter between Judas and Jesus is playing out. There's emotion in the in the garden that evening. Their minds are running rapidly. What could happen next? The emotions are flowing. Everything's being compressed. The spring is about to be released. And this is where Jesus hears this question. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Again, he's saying, can we kill? Can we destroy? Can we fight? Can we establish the kingdom? Can we take our step forward now? Can we take over? Can we be the bosses now? And as they are products of their time, just like we all are, they firmly believe Messiah was coming to be a conquering king. He was going to kick the Romans out. They were going to establish a kingdom. Everything was going to be good. And the 12 disciples are going to become 12 kings within the kingdom. And they'll have a place of ruling and reigning themselves. They still don't get it. They simply missed the point of Jesus' kingdom being a spiritual one. Thus a sword, thus a question. See, the followers of Jesus at this point were more than willing to step up to the plate of political insurrection and chaos. But would they be willing to lay down their lives for the king? Without waiting for an answer from Jesus, one of those followers follows Uh, on with the question and pulls a sword. And we're told in another gospel, it's a guy named Peter who has an impetuous streak in him. And he goes to hacking off an ear. You know what that tells me? He had bad aim. I don't think he was looking to hack an ear. I think he was looking to take a life. I've never had to face somebody with a sword, but I can't imagine they go, hey, I'm going to get you and I'm going to cut your ear off. Really? Really? Well, it's more I'm going to get you and I'm going to cut your head off. Now, have you ever been cut on a head wound? You know it bleeds profusely. It would be in a mess at that moment. And I'm pretty sure it didn't feel too good to have an ear cut off. But we have what we have is a question that reveals a lack of nature and understanding of the kingdom of God. They don't get it. They don't know where he's going. They don't follow through it. See, they still envision territory. They envision thrones. They envision command. They envision, envision being in charge. They're going from the bottom of society to the top of society to be somebody. And as Jesus would tell Pilate shortly the next day, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. No, Jesus sees kingdom vastly different than his disciples so often do. He sees kingdom as a state of spiritual transformation that results in a different destination. So Jesus, in all of his authority, stops the fight before it went any further, and he heals the man. See, whenever those of us who profess to be followers of Jesus take matters into our own hand, what we reveal is this. We don't really trust Jesus. We really don't depend on him. We're not really listening to his voice. We're not really following his leadership. We're just doing what we want and hoping that somehow he'll bless it. We show our lives are out of tune with the will of God, and we are out of tune with the ways of Jesus. Oh, learning to turn the other cheek. Refusing to raise tensions. Refusing battle when it's right. That's that second question. Should we choose to fight? Third question. Why do people so easily misunderstand? 
I think this is the question we could ask about the disciples in Jesus' day specifically, and I suspect we could ask it about ourselves as well generally. Why do we miss it so often, what Jesus' kingdom is really all about? Why do we miss the point of what he's here for? Look what Jesus says. Jesus says to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who have come out against him, have you come out against, come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? They go, why? How can you not understand what I have been teaching now for three years? How can you not have heard the stories? How can you not have seen the miracles? How can you not have seen the works of Christ? How can you not have seen the good things that have come through these last three years? How could you not grasp it, my friends? Oh, be careful not to throw stones at the disciples too quickly because you and I struggle with the same question. There's been no action on Jesus' part, no move on his part, no decision made by him that based that made him a thief who needed to come and be arrested in the dark as he was going to like run away. But they're treating him like some common thief that needed to be surprised and apprehended. Remember, Jesus has done every action in public places. He's done it with people watching. He's done it with no malice. He's done it with no intent to deceive. And yet the response of the religious people has been what? To sneak out under cover of darkness to get him and arrest him. I wonder, did they think they would have to beat him into submission before he would go? Were they really planning on using excessive force against Jesus? Their question, I think, is rather enlightening because as they reveal as, as they reveal they don't really understand who Jesus is. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? Why do we so mes- easily misunderstand who Jesus is? Jesus was there for greater purpose. He wasn't there for physical kingdom. He wasn't there for financial gain. He wasn't there to get his. He was there to serve as the redeemer, as the lamb of God, to take away the sin of the redeemed and to make forgiveness possible and restoration available. But they thought he was going to destroy their power. They thought he was going to destroy their alliance. He thought they were going to tear up their world. They believed he was creating such a stir, it behooved them to knock him down. Let me tell you what, there's three reasons why Jesus came, at least three reasons. I could probably write about 20 of them. But here's three quick reasons. They're not in your outline, but I left you room for them if you want them. There's three reasons Jesus came. Number one, it's this, to do the will of the Father. To do the will of the Father. Jesus came to earth for the express purpose of doing the will of the Father. Look at the verse on the screen. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Why did Jesus come? He came to fulfill God's plan for us, to pay the price for us, to bring the redemption available for us that we so desperately need. It was God's will for the Son of Man to pay the price that we could not pay. And no band of thugs slinking in the dark was going to either make it happen or stop it from happening. No, Jesus came to do Jesus to do God's will. You think, well, why was God's will for him to die on a cross? You know, we sang a song, we all get to heaven. And you know that song's not intended to mean everybody's going to heaven. It's those of us who know him. But when I get to heaven, I've got a question. Couldn't there have been another way to bring salvation for us? Couldn't there have been another way to bring redemption for us? Did Jesus really have to die a cruel death that we'll look at in a few weeks? Did he really have to go through that? And it was God's will for that to happen. I don't understand that. But I believe it. And I accept it. You know, I don't have to understand everything to know it's true. 
So he came to do the will of the Father. Second reason Jesus came was this, to call sinners to repentance. Look at Mark 2.17. Those who are well have no need of a physician. I don't know about you, but last time I went to a physician when I wasn't sick is because it was an annual physical. Other than that, I don't go to those guys. One, they always want money when I go. And two, they always find something wrong. Have you noticed? It's kind of like, you know, going to an auto mechanic saying, is there a problem? Oh, yes, there's a problem. Right? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. You go, I'm not sick. Oh, my friends, we're born in sick. We're born in sin. We're born in rebellion. We're born with a heart bent against the ways of God, the things of God, the direction of God, the holiness of God. And Jesus says this, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Praise God that he came for us. He was not there to call those who were convinced they were already okay. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. I'm moral enough. I'm religious enough. I'm good. That's the people he dealt with. That's the people we have today. But those who realized and accepted the reality that they lived in a sinful existence without God, he came to call you, he came to call me to repent of our sin. What sin is that? The ultimate sin is this, rejecting Jesus as Savior. That's what separates us from God and to trust him. And the offer was made not just to those who recognized they were sinners, but to all people. I think it's clear in this story as we'll look at over the next few weeks and see it even more. It's clear that the religious leaders didn't understand his intent. But in many ways, neither did those who followed him. They didn't get it yet. So he came to do the will of the Father, to call sinners to repentance. Third, he came to what? To save sinners. To save us. Look at what 1 Timothy 1.15 says. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Paul was writing a letter to a young man who was a, had his faith in Christ already. He was beginning to serve as a, a bishop, a pastor of churches on the island of Crete. And he tells him, look, we got to make sure we understand who we are in Christ. We've been saved. He came to make the way possible for people like you and me to receive forgiveness. Praise God. Can you imagine where you would be without the forgiveness of Jesus? Can you imagine what your life would be like without the the faith-giving, life-giving transformation of Christ in your life? Some of you say, well, I don't know if I know that. I don't know if I've met him. I don't know if I've experienced that. Let me tell you, that is the beginning of life. There's a reason we call it being born again. We're all born We all have a day we remember. Well, we don't remember, but we're told that was the day we were born. We have a date on the calendar. That's the day we came into this world. We were born. Our mother went through the agony and pain of delivering us, and yet she still loves us, right? And yet, there has to come a day when we're born again, born of the Spirit. That's why Jesus came to do the will of the Father, to call us to repentance and to save sinners of whom I am chief. His actions were undertaken to accomplish the purpose and the religious leaders were trying to take his life. Judas turns his back. His disciples don't understand. They can't figure it out. But you know what? That didn't change the purpose of Jesus' life. So what's the first step? Let me just real quickly remind you or share with you if you've never heard it. The first step is to trust Christ. 
Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus die? Why do we have Easter? We like to get eggs and hide them in the yard and then mow them up a month later. No. He came so that we could have life. And that doorway into that life is to trust him with your whole heart, to admit that you're a sinner, to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and then to confess him as Savior. It's that simple, my friends. We need to be reminded of this because often we have missed it. We don't get it. We get away from it. We walk. Stay with Christ. Walk with Christ. Let him experience, let you experience his transformation in your life. Let me ask you this. Do you remember the moment you trusted Jesus? I remember I was a seven-year-old boy, almost eight, sitting in a preacher's office, and I don't remember the guy's name, just know where the building was at this point. And I knew I was missing something that the people around me at church had, and that was a relationship with Jesus. Have you come to the place you trusted him? Have you come to the place where you accepted him? The world's going to get ugly at times. Jesus is getting ready to go through the ugliest 24 hours you can imagine. But he did it for you so you could have life and life everlasting. Father, we pray and ask you to bless this moment that we've come together. We thank you, God, for allowing us to share this story together and look at the questions that were raised in the garden. Father, help us to clearly see our relationship with you. Have we trusted you? Have we followed you? Have we accepted you? And then have we gone the next steps after that of living the life, of doing the things that you call us to, to be the people you want us to be? Father, we pray for these next few moments. For the other, there are some who need to make some type of decision, maybe publicly, maybe privately. We pray that they would do that as we sing. And we want you to be glorified in this moment. In Jesus' name.